This special event is followed by a festive champagne reception with the musicians in the historic and beautifully decorated Cole Mansion. Proceeds benefit Music at Cole's Artistic Development Fund and support its mission of quality music and music education in San Mateo County. That's a benefit concert by the Fog Trio, Sunday, January 3rd at Burlingame's Cole Mansion. Tickets at musicatcole.org or 650-762-1130. And it is 3 p.m. here at 94.1 FM KPFA in Berkeley, also 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. And time now for Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. I know that you're all calling in. We have, um, we have folks in the phone room today. So if you can call into KPFA and help us out, I would really appreciate it. Uh, I will stop, uh, five minutes early and try to, um, try to persuade you one more time. As I said, it's, it's just today, just today until 7 p.m. So please, if you have any help to give us, uh, call us up and donate. You know, it's tax deductible. Uh, I know that a lot of you, <laughs> like me, are maybe on a social security check. And if you can't, if you can't, well, you can't. But some of you can afford to help out a little bit. It's that time of year, you know. Uh, mustn't be Scrooges. I was looking today. Uh, I, I get, I get hooked on history at this time of year. I can't help it. Today is Tuesday, December the 29th, 2009. Almost the end of the year. I, I just whirled the calendar around and I went back to 1890. Yes, four days after Christmas. 1890, Pine Ridge. And I need to read you this because, you know, this is our history. It's the history that will haunt us all forever. Uh, Wounded Knee and everyone, yes, everyone... (laughs) Everyone running away when the madness ended. Bigfoot and more than half of his people were dead or seriously wounded. 
A hundred and fifty-three were known dead, but many of the wounded crawled away to die afterwards. One estimate placed the final total of dead at very nearly three hundred of the original three hundred and fifty men, women, and children. Soldiers lost, well, twenty-five dead and thirty-nine wounded. Most of them struck by their own bullets or shrapnel. The cavalrymen ah, went over the wounded knee battlefield, gathering up Indians who were still alive, loading them into wagons. It was apparent by the end of the day, the fourth day after Christmas. Yes. It was apparent by the end of the day that a blizzard was approaching. The dead Indians were left lying where they had fallen. After the blizzard, when a burial party returned to Wounded Knee, they found the bodies, including Bigfoots, frozen into grotesque shapes. The wagon loads of wounded Sioux. Reached Pine Ridge after dark. All available barracks were filled with soldiers. The women, children, men, Sioux were all left lying in the open wagons, in the bitter cold. While an inept army officer searched for shelter. Finally, they opened the Episcopal Mission. Benches were taken out and hay scattered over the rough flooring. It was the fourth day after Christmas in the year of our Lord, eighteen ninety, when the first torn and bleeding bodies were carried into the candlelit church. Those who were conscious could see Christmas greenery hanging from the open rafters across the chancel front. Above the pulpit was strung a crudely lettered banner: "Peace on earth, goodwill to men." That's、uh, the end of "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee: History of the American West" by D. Brown, D. E. E. Brown. Ah,、uh, I know most KPFA listeners have read "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee." I just. Uh, find that it comes back to、uh, haunt me as I take apart all that greenery, take it down from the ceiling. You know, I think of that、uh, church, that mission where they took the、uh, the survivors at Pine Ridge. Let me read you the reflections of Black Elk to end this. This recollection of our American Christmas past, Black Elk wrote, "I did not know then how much was ended. When I look back now from this high hill of my old age, I can still see the butchered women and children." Lying heaped and scattered all along the crooked gulches plain, as when I saw them with eyes still young, and I can see that something else died there in the bloody mud and was buried in the blizzard. 
A people's dream died there. It was a beautiful dream. The nation's hoop is broken and scattered. There is no center any longer. And the sacred tree is dead. Yes, a dream lies dead here, and this all mourners know. It's a curious thing uh, how quickly Americans forget and begin anew. Some people think that's a good thing. I've never been sure about that. <laughs> I have so many things to tell you today, and they're all jumbled up. Uh, first of all, I want to tell you that uh, <laughs> the Sundance Channel, the best of cable TV, is running a documentary that uh, knocked my socks off. I've been reading a lot of books for young girls. I was picking out books over Christmas, and uh, the lives of girls and women caught my attention this holiday season. And Monday night, last night, there's a documentary called A Slim Peace. And it's all about women today. Palestinian women, Bedouin women, Israeli women, Arab women. Uh, the show A Slim Peace is, um, was kind of a joke. Um, the idea was that these women were going to get together and lose weight. Now, I'm sure that most of you think that that is a very triv trivial issue. In the opening sequence, one of the Israeli women asked the Rebbe to bless the uh, event, and he said, he said it was, well, he didn't think it was very serious, but he said he would bless anything they asked him to, yes. Anyway, it was the sort of documentary that made me feel like a human being again, uh, made me feel that it's really fun to be uh, a female. Uh, the project... Uh, was set up in um, Jerusalem. They met at the British Film Institute there. They said it was the only place they could think of to meet. Uh, and it takes place during the period when Hamas was elected. So you can imagine how these women um, felt about each other. Uh, it's so interesting. One of the women was named Stern... S-T-E-R-N. Yes. Uh -huh. The Stern Gang. She is a daughter-in-law of the leader of that infamous Israeli uh, gang. They were called, yes, the Stern Gang that challenged the British way back in the beginning when Israel was founded back in the 1940s. Anyway, um, when the state of Israel came into being. Uh, she was fascinating. Uh, anyway, uh, she was not particularly political. <laughs> anyway, uh, these women, what is it? Uh, they tried. I cannot say they succeeded, but they certainly did try. Uh, it shows The film shows them over a period of uh, a year or two. And um, they do reach out to one another, but um, the problems are not resolved. Let's face it. Uh, there is no glorious happy ending. However, uh, 
I thought it was a wonderful excuse to bring these women together. Uh, they were all worried about their uh, body image, their weight. <laughs> How mundane can you get? And then, of course, before they were through, they all were of opinion that that was the least of their problems. That was the last thing on their list. Uh, at the same time, it was wonderful to see them all dancing together uh, and their weight problems like like my weight problems. Maybe yours are just symptomatic of our situation in life. Uh, the women were all over the map, of course, but what I noticed was that they had so much in common uh, the only outsiders, if you can call them that, uh, at least in their opinion, were Israeli settlers from the United States. Uh, that's where the cultural differences uh, were sharp. Uh, it seemed to me that the Israeli women and the Palestinian women got along fine. Those who had been raised in the Middle East, uh, something about their sense of fun and their song and dance. Uh, that stuff works, you know. The spirit descends in song. Sad to think that it's our own Western culture, our United States of America attitude. Uh, that's what's kind of a sour note and no fun. Uh, but that's a generalization. There's a lot of happy, fun people right here in Berkeley. <laughs> it seems to me in the last few years, though, we have begun to lose our sense of humor here in the West. Uh, I bet you Brazil is more cheerful than Berkeley. The fun is down south. Anyway, we must try harder, because here comes 2010. I think we're going to call it... Uh, 2010. I think we're going to switch to 20. 2010. Nice number. Personally, I plan to give up this year. I plan to take the off-ramp on the information highway and try to get back to uh, some more basic concepts. I don't need any more input. Uh, I need to touch the earth again. Need to take long walks in the woods, treks to the seashore. Lately, all I do is play audio tapes of the old poets, songs of sentiment, you know, Leonard Cohen, uh, gets me through the night. Uh, last night I watched, um, the, um, the series called American Masters. I wanted to check out uh, a show about um, Louisa May Alcott and I have to say that I was disappointed uh, <laughs> it could have been well, it could have been worse but Jane Alexander tried to put it together uh, she well, I don't know how to describe uh, they, they seem to be worried about whether or not Louisa May Alcott was a great writer, you know. Uh, they did point out that she made, oh, three or four or five times as much money as Melville and uh, an awful lot, let's see, more than Henry James, that kind of thing. But then they pointed out that Henry James had said that she was, uh, what do you call that, um, <laughs> 
Well, let's just put it this way, you know. What was it they used to say about women writers? Uh, <laughs> no, I won't quote that. It's just too unkind. Uh, anyway, Little Women meant a lot to me when I was growing up. And PBS is airing this biography of Louisa May Alcott because it's interesting history. Louisa May Alcott was certainly a fierce woman. She went out running every day. Uh, she is based on the character of Joe March. Excuse me, the character of Joe March in the book Little Women is based on Louisa. But uh, the... <laughs> The truth is that uh, real life in the 19th century was nothing like the book. Uh, Alcott wrote those juvenilia books because that's how she made money, and she certainly needed the money. She supported her family. She and her father died, I think, almost within a day of each other. She died not knowing her father had preceded her. She was 56, I think. They draw the conclusion that she must have died of lupus, uh, although there's no way of proving it. Uh, I got one copy, one videotape of the uh, the film, the more recent film, Winona Ryder's film, because some of it's nice, but I think Winona Ryder is the last actress I would cast as Louisa May Alcott. Catherine Hepburn didn't do such a bad job. Uh, June Allison I could skip. Uh, I think, what was it, when I was a schoolgirl, we used to say that the character of Marmy in Little Women was Smarmy. But in the more recent film, Susan Sarandon does a good job of uh, playing this feminist mom, you know. Uh, she says things like, I won't have my girls being silly about boys. Now, uh, I think that the screenwriters thought that was 19th century feminism. You know, uh, the daughter, the oldest daughter is always making a fuss uh, when Joe talks about uh, their underwear or something like that. Uh, now, the truth about Louisa May Alcott is that um, she decided she decided that the bottom line was the money. Money, money, money. Survival choice, Yes. She tucked up her dress, she went running, and then she came home and got out her pen. And she knew that Victorian sentimentality would sell like uh, hot cakes. I think I uh, loved that book when I was about 12, probably because it was maudlin. The death of the sister Beth shattered me when I was a kid. Uh, that stuff always got to me. Uh, crippled or dying children, the tiny Tims of the Dickensian stories, uh, suffering children, social reformers, those folks were back in the 19th century. Uh, and I'm not one of those who laughs at that sort of thing. When I was in school in the middle of the 20th century, it was customary to sneer at books like Uncle Tom's Cabin. Remember the one by Harriet Beecher Stowe in which... Uh, well, the book begins when a slave mother uh, literally kills her child rather than have it grow up uh, in slavery. And uh, uh, most of the academics told me that the book was just maudlin and that Harriet Beecher Stowe was 
unhappy because she had lost a child, and that's why she made such a fuss about motherhood. Uh, actually, Abraham Lincoln knew that Harriet Beecher Stowe did more to start the Civil War than John Brown. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think that we're due for a revival of sentiment, not sentimentality. Sentimentality indicates false or pseudo-sentiment. I think that uh, we've had enough violence in our narratives, and I think that uh, that literary sin, sentimentality, <laughs> is going to make a comeback. I don't know. I don't know. I, I know that false sentiment does still make me cringe, but... Um, We've gone about as far as we can go with the vroom vroom stories. I know that the the movies I watched Avatar, a pirated version of Avatar, with a friend uh, Christmas Eve, and uh, it is remarkable. It is the latest thing in technology, but I'm still only interested in the human story. Uh, I, I guess the machinery, the what I call the toy store quality that's been, well, ever since Star Wars. Uh, these movies seem to me like explosions in a toy store, but uh, we know that they sell well because they can go anywhere around the globe, don't even need uh, language. That's what the action movies are about. Um, I still think, I still think that most people need uh, a human narrative, something, if not, well, if not romantic, at least, um, what do you call that, uh, something so that we can identify with the characters, so that we give a damn whether they live or die. <laughs> it's For me, it's kind of hard. I, I, I think those ten-foot-tall avatars are very beautiful, but they, they look to me like praying mantises. But there's no point complaining. Steven Spielberg's, uh, what is the movie, Artificial Intelligence, is the latest one I've been trying to, I've been trying to figure out whether it's watchable. I, I like Jude Law. He plays the, uh, a robot, but he's a gigolo. I thought he was delightful. And the little boy who's just one more model, uh, what is it? There's an infinite, where, there's a warehouse full of little boys named David, you know. Little robot boys. I'm not sure what Steven Spielberg had in mind uh, in artificial intelligence, but that's one of those movies I'm going to have to sit down and watch again. It was not very popular. And uh, the machinery, the machinery there, once again, was fascinating. We we shall see. We shall see. Uh, I trust the children. I ask them, you know, which of these new films are any good. And usually they can explain to me, you know, where technology fails. <laughs> anyway, I wish I had time to read you. I was going to read you. Well, let's see. Yes, I have just, I think, just time to read you something of my own. This goes back, not 1890, 1980. I'll switch to 1980. 
And this is my own memoir, right? Time to write my annual autumn autopsy. Right, every year, every year at this time. I go underground. The winter solstice. I try to get it together and wrap it up and recycle it. Hide in a hole like the groundhog and crawl out and look around only. I'm always waiting for the the dark, the dark of winter, you know. I peek out, check the weather. That is the people in the scene, and if I see my shadow, well, I just get drunk. That's how I know it's still fall. Still fall, the year isn't dead yet, not yet. I'm coming out so slowly this year. There's still a little shadow that goes in and out with me. I don't think I'll finish in time for the dark. Of course, it isn't hard once you get started. The first thing is to get it all laid out before you, and then there must be a clean knife and a clear vision. Before consulting the entrails, it's necessary to do a lot of deep breathing because of the smells. This year, I must say, the auspices were very auspicious. I threw away the heart and that tiresome burden I see in the mirror. I set aside several strands of my nervous system. With these, I can begin. First, I write down everything I know, which doesn't take long, and then I type everything on those little index cards, underline all the political stuff in red, use a blue highlighter for all the personal parts, distinguish fact from fiction by using the scissors to cut the corners. At some point, I take a psychotic break, which usually lasts three days, although I have no way of knowing, for sure. Then I carefully reread everything and select the really heavy stuff. Profoundly, I engrave it on a stone tablet, bake it, break it, smash it all to fragments, mail the dust to the Atlantic Monthly. The sands of mind will be this year's title. (laughs) Laughing at my own works, I have an old friend who thinks that's a terrible thing to do. (laughs) But I said, if I don't laugh at them, who knows who will. Now, I have just about two minutes to ask you, please, please, to call KPFA and offer your support. Uh, You know how it is, folks. Uh, We're having a depression, repression, suppression. I don't know what we're having. We're having a, oh, there's a wonderful, there's a much better word for it. Stag, stagflation, stagflation. No, that isn't what it is. Anyway, everybody's out of work and there isn't any money. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. We used to go to poetry readings and say, make money funny. And then we would, we would take the uh, Monopoly money and make little airplanes and throw it around and, People aren't laughing, I'm afraid. Uh, I've always tried to explain to people that money isn't real, you know, that it's all an illusion. But uh, I'm afraid it's a real illusion. Uh, We have no premiums to offer you today. We just need you to call and help us out. You can get us at 1-800-439-5732. We'll be here tonight till 7 o'clock. Please take time to give us a little more support. We need, what is it, not just subscriptions, but maybe a little extra 
a little extra cash. Uh, I know some folks, not not many, but some folks are in a position. You know, some folks have some cash flow, a little extra to spare. Uh, I think I think it's hard to remember uh, what we need here. I I took a look the other day at some of the bills, and it scared me. Uh, it's just like everything else, you know, at home. All those uh, utility bills, and of course, these engineers have lean and hungry looks. We've got to feed these folks. Uh, anyway, this is a non-profit organization, folks. Your donations are tax deductible. To the fullest extent allowed by law. You don't even have to subtract the premiums because we don't have any premiums today. Uh, you can donate stocks if you've got some. I'm one of those people who wouldn't know a stock if I saw it. <laughs> Remember the phone number. You can call in anytime till 7 p.m. tonight because there's folks in the phone room. It's 1-800-439-5732. Or you can visit us online, kpfa.org. Oh, jingle bells. It's all over, folks. Here comes a brand new year. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Listening is an essential skill to know when producing a quality radio show. The First Voice Apprenticeship Program, a community-sponsored radio station, KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley, can help satisfy your burn to learn the latest techniques being used in the world of radio broadcasting.